Thank you, everyone. It's great to be with you this morning to worship together. Yeah, if you have a Bible with you, let's go to Nehemiah chapter 3, which is essentially a long list of names uh, of the people who built the wall. So Nehemiah chapter 3, let's pray together as we open God's word. Father God, we pray that as we open your word this morning that you would speak powerfully to us. We pray that Um, This would not be my words or wisdom uh, that would be not so helpful, but God, that your spirit would speak through your word to your people. Build us up, encourage us, instruct us, we pray. Give us the courage and faith to obey and to honor you in all things. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Nehemiah chapter 3. You know, we, we are suffering from a disease which Andrew Wilson calls individualitis. And the idea is this, that We believe that the world is primarily about me as an individual. History is mainly about me. The world is here for me. We we probably wouldn't say it like that because that would be really rude, but because we're human, we fall into this diseased thinking that the, the way that we think about the world and the church is primarily about me. It's all about me. The Western world is highly individualistic and makes this individualitis even more Pronounced. We tend to think of individual rights and freedoms rather than the good of the collective. Younger people especially are heavily individualistic. If you are under the age of 40 about, uh, you were raised being told that you can do anything you want to. You just set your heart on it. You just follow your dreams. Just believe in yourself. This is the message of every single Olympics commercial. Have you seen them? <laughs> right? If you just believe, you will accomplish your dreams. A huge number of our movies and films are about ordinary people who started to believe in themselves, persevere, and then break through to incredible greatness and success. In the, if you have kids, you'll know this one. In the movie Planes, Dusty Crop Hopper, the crop duster becomes a world famous racing plane in spite of clearly not being engineered to fly that way, right? And Cinderella marries the prince and Rudy gets to play Notre Dame football. And in the pursuit of happiness, Will Smith goes from homeless to a Wall Street tycoon. So these examples are held up for us. This is what you're like. You just have to believe in yourself, right? So when we're younger, we tend to believe that we are destined. We're destined for fame and wealth and success. We, we need to believe in ourselves and keep on and it will come. We also tend to view all of history this way, as the great achievements of heroic individuals. This is called the great man theory of history, where we tell history, we tell history in as a series of successful individuals. It's all about Alexander the Great and Napoleon and Wilberforce and Churchill and MLK. And all this leads us to view history as the incredible accomplishments of individuals. And so we look at that through a heavily individualistic lens as well. And this has even come into the church. Even in the church, we we read our Bibles through a heavily individualistic lens where we come across promises and conclude this promise is for me rather than this promise is for us. So best example, Jeremiah 29, 11, for I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you and not to harm you, plans to give you a hope and a future. And we read that and we assume that the you is singular you, and that God is talking about me. God has special plans just for me, when the you, of course, is plural. 
and refers to the collective people of God in general and the Israelites living in exile in, in specifics. And so we tend to view the church through an individualistic lens too. We think that the church is a helpful thing, but the main thing is about a relationship with, between me and Jesus, right? That it's, church is good, it's good to be part of a church, church can be helpful because it serves the main thing, which is me and Jesus. And, and this, I think, has been made far worse through the pandemic, where we have spent weeks on end throughout this year at chunks of time, where our experience of church is watching TV with our pajamas on, right? And so that probably has gotten us out of the habit of corporate worship as well, where it's reinforcing this thinking that, that church is mainly here to serve my relationship with Jesus. It's just me and Jesus, and church kind of helps that out. But listen, in the Bible, the main relationship is not between you and Jesus, but between Jesus and his church. It's more Jesus and us than it is Jesus and me. And in, in pastoral ministry, we fall into this as well. We tend to elevate the highly gifted and believe that God will make us just as famous and successful. When I, when I was a young man, I really did believe that I had the passions and the gifts to grow the church any church exponentially, like, like many young men, I believe that I could be famous and successful. And in my, in my better moments, that motivation, uh, the motivation for that was the glory of God and the advance of the gospel. But in other moments, it was really just about a bigger and bigger spotlight. But listen, as I see it, the world is primarily, uh, God's purpose in the world is primarily being realized through the church, the bride of Christ. And, and God's purpose for you as an individual is largely bound up with his purpose for the church. The major thrust of the Bible is not individualistic, but collective, that God is building a people, not just calling individuals on their own. That the individuals he does call, he calls into a people. And God is not building his church through a few select superhero pastors, dynamic leaders, but through millions and millions of unknown people being faithful to the few things that God has put for them to do, depending on his word and on his spirit. And so we, we can tend to read the Bible in this incredibly individualistic way. We, we see it as a series of character sketches of great men and women who we ought to imitate. So we're exhorted, right? We're exhorted to slay our giants and dare to be a Daniel and to lead like Nehemiah. Yeah, Nehemiah, the guy who built the wall, right? Nehemiah built the wall. Or, or did he? Did he build the wall? If you're reading through Nehemiah, over the first two chapters of Nehemiah, all the focus is on Nehemiah. His persistent, fervent prayer, his risk-taking righteousness, his strategic planning, his vision-casting leadership. Early on, it's all about Nehemiah. What a hero. What a guy. We should be like Nehemiah. And then you get to chapter 3, and the actual building of the wall begins, and Nehemiah fades out of view. And what we will read here will challenge our assumption that Nehemiah built the wall, and I think it should challenge our hero-worshiping, individualistic spirituality as well, and I hope will deeply encourage us. So put on your seatbelt, grab your Bible, Nehemiah chapter 3. We're going to read the whole chapter, and then we're going to make some reflections on what God has to say through his word. 
All scripture is God breathed. Here we go. Nehemiah 3. Then Eliashib, the high priest, rose up with his brothers, the priests, and they built the sheep gate. They consecrated it and set its doors. They consecrated it as far as the Tower of Hundred, as far as the Tower of Hananel. And next to him, the men of Jericho built. And next to them, Zachar, the son of Imri, built. The sons of Hassanah built the fish gate. They laid its beams, set its doors, its bolts, and its bars. And next to them, Merimoth, the son of Uriah, the son of Hakaz, repaired. And next to them, Meshullam, the son of Berechiah, the son of Meshazabal, repaired. And next to them, Zadok, the son of Bana, repaired. And next to them, the Tekoites repaired. But their nobles would not stoop to serve their Lord. Joeda, the son of Paseah, and Meshullam, the son of Besadeah, repaired the gate of Yeshana. They laid its beams and set its doors, its bolts, and its bars. And next to them, Melatiah, the Gibeonite, and Jadon, the Maranothite, the men of Gibeon, and Mitzpah, the seat of the governor of the province beyond the river. Next to them, Uzael, the son of Harheah, goldsmiths, repaired. Next to him, Hananiah, one of the perfumers, repaired. And they restored Jerusalem as far as the broad wall. Next to them, Rephiah, the son of Hur, ruler of half the district of Jerusalem, repaired. Next to them, Jediah, the son of Haramaph, repaired opposite his house. And next to him, Hattush, the son of Hashabnia, repaired. Melchiah, the son of Haram, and Hashub, the son of Pahath Moab, repaired another section. And the tower of the ovens. Next to him, Shalom, the son of Halahesh, ruler of half the district of Jerusalem, repaired he and his daughters. Hanan and the inhabitants of Zenoa repaired the valley gate. They rebuilt it and set its doors, its bolts, and its bars and repaired a thousand cubits of the wall as far as the dung gate. Melchiah, the son of Rechab, ruler of the district of Beth Hacharem, repaired the dung gate. He rebuilt it and set its doors, its bolts, and its bars. And Shalom, the son of Kolhose, ruler of the district of Mitzpah, repaired the fountain gate. He rebuilt it and covered it and set its doors, its bolts, and its bars. And he built the wall of the pool of Shalah of the king's garden as far as the stairs that go down from the city of David. After him, Nehemiah, the son of Azbuk, ruler of half the district of Bethzer, repaired to a point opposite the tombs of David as far as the artificial pool and as far as the house of the mighty men. After him, the Levites repaired. Rehem, the son of Bani, next to him, Hashabiah, ruler of half the district of Kela, repaired for his district. After him, their brothers repaired. Bavi, the son of Henadad, ruler of half the district of Kela. Next to him, Ezer, the son of Yeshua, ruler of Mitzpah, repaired another section opposite the ascent to the armory at the buttress. After him, Baruch, the son of Zabai, repaired another section from the buttresses to the door of the house of Eliashub, the high priest. After him, Merimoth, the son of Uriah, the son of Hakaz, repaired another section from the door of the house of Eliashib to the end of the house of Eliashib. After him, the priests, the men of the surrounding area, repaired. After them, Benjamin and Hashub repaired opposite their house. After them, Azariah, the son of Messiah, son of Ananiah, repaired beside his own house. After him, Benui, the son of Henadad, repaired another section from the house of Azariah to the buttress and to the corner. Pelel, the son of Uzziah, repaired opposite the buttress and the tower projecting from the upper house of the king at the court of the guard. After him, Padiah, the son of Perosh, and the temple servants living on Ophel, repaired to a point opposite the water gate on the east and the projecting tower. After him, the Tekoites repaired another section opposite the great projecting tower as far as the wall of Ophel. Above the horse gate, the priests repaired, each one opposite his own house. After them, Zadok, the son of Immer, repaired opposite his own house. After him, Shemaiah, the son of Shechaniah, the keeper of the east gate, repaired. 
After him, Hananiah, the son of Shelemiah, and Hanun, the sixth son of Zelph, repaired another section. After him, Meshelam, the son of Berechiah, repaired opposite his chamber. After him, Melchiah, one of the goldsmiths, repaired as far as the house of the temple servants and of the merchants opposite the muster gate and to the upper chamber of the corner. And between the upper chamber of the corner and the sheep gate, the goldsmiths and merchants repaired. Amen. Some great baby names in there. That's great. Okay, what is going on here? What is going on here? What we have is a description of the work, right? Uh, likely from Nehemiah's own memoirs. He describes the work. He lists who did what work, starting in the northeast corner of the city with the sheep gate, moving counterclockwise around the city till they reach back to the sheep gate. Passage is structured around seven gates and all the walls between them, 40 or 41 sections mentioned here, being built up simultaneously, two and a half miles of wall, three to four feet thick, 15 to 20 feet high, and he tells us who built what parts of the wall. That's it. Amen. Let's get lunch. But wh why? Why is this even here? What, what's the point of this text? Why is this in the Bible? This whole chapter could be summarized with a sentence. And the people worked on the wall. Go to chapter 4, right? But God believes this matters. It's in the scriptures, right? But some people seem to think it has no purpose. If you read, you know, famous preachers going through Nehemiah, they'll just skip this chapter altogether, many of them. You're reading in a preaching commentary, chapter 2, but chapter 4. Just, I have nothing to say on this whatsoever. Those who do preach through through this uh, section, often preach about Nehemiah's amazing leadership, organizing all these people to do this work. But is that, is that what this text is really about? Nehemiah isn't even mentioned in this chapter once. There's another guy named Nehemiah, it's a different guy. If this chapter is about organizational leadership and leading the vision, it's strange that Nehemiah isn't even mentioned once. But, but I did hear one sermon many, many years ago that totally changed my understanding of this passage, a great preacher named Andrew Wilson from the UK, and he helped me think about this text in a different way. See, this chapter is not all about leadership. If you're looking for a passage about great leadership, this is actually the worst place to go. There's not a single leader in this text. All you have is a long list of names, a long, tedious, slow list of strange, strange names uh, obscure and unimportant forgotten people who did a little bit of work, a small portion of work in rebuilding the wall. So why is this even here? Because I think this, if we didn't have this passage, if we didn't have this chapter, we might conclude that it was Nehemiah all on his own who built the wall, who was the great hero. Nehemiah built the wall. He's the one that matters. His great leadership got the wall built. And the lesson that perhaps we would learn is this, that if you want to matter, if you want your life to count, if you want your life to do something that really matters, you have to be a singularly great leader that single-handedly accomplishes great feats on your own. And if you're not that guy, if you're not that great leader, well, you're kind of nothing. You don't really matter. But but that's not how God works in the Bible or in history. God does not just call a rare few people to do marvelous feats all on their own while relegating the rest of us to be forgotten by history, having done nothing of eternal value. This, rather, is the story of dozens and dozens of individuals doing their part. People you've never heard of being faithful with their bit, seeing the God 
that has laid an opportunity before them, being faithful to the things that God has put right in front of them, and together doing amazing things. This is the story of the high priest setting the example, putting away his scrolls and getting sweaty and dirty with the others. It's about Shalom and his daughters working on the wall together as a family, just down from the Tower of Ovens, where I imagine it always smells like a bakery. Tower of Ovens would be a great place to work. It's like a subway over there. It's about the sons of Hassanah, brothers working together, building the fish gate. And it's about Melchiah, who got stuck working on the dung gate. The dung gate is what you think it is. It was located in the southwest corner of the city, led to the Valley of Hinnom, where garbage and human excrement were dumped. And that's how this guy's remembered for all history. Melchiah, only mentioned here, the dung gate guy. It does not smell like a bakery when you're working at the dung gate. But listen, someone's got to fix the dung gate because what use is most of a wall, right? If everyone does their job and fixes the wall, but nobody works on the dung gate, the wall is useless. The city can be taken. God's people can be destroyed. God's purposes will fail. And so someone has to fix the dung gate. And as we look closer at these ordinary people working together and accomplishing God's purposes, there's a number of important lessons that we ought to learn, which directly apply to our life together as a church. They were God's people called together to this work of rebuilding the wall and defending Jerusalem so God's purposes could succeed. We are God's people called together to the work of the gospel to see God's purposes accomplished in Canada. And so there's some things that we can learn from them. The first is this, that God does his work through ordinary people faithfully doing their part. Ordinary people faithfully doing their part. The whole chapter is dozens and dozens of people, each given a small amount. No individual can say, I built the wall, but each played their part. And it's only because they each did their part that they even ever did finish building the wall. Likewise, in the church, God is doing his incredible kingdom building work, not just through remarkable hero types, but through ordinary people doing their part. This is how it's always been. The story of God's redemptive work is not the story of individual heroes as much as it's the story of Israel and the church. We have this wrong belief that if we aren't storming the gates of hell or preaching to 20,000 people or slaying Goliath, we're not doing something that matters. We're not making our life count, but we're wrong in thinking that. The message of Nehemiah for us is that God builds his kingdom and does his work through ordinary people being faithful with the tasks that he's given them to do, being faithful in those few things that he has entrusted to them. There are no small people. There are no small tasks in the kingdom of God. See, when we're young, we tend to believe that we can be history-changing, heroic people, that, you know, I'm going to make a difference in the world for God. I'm going to be one of those heroes that are remembered. I remember in youth group, we'd sing the song, I'm going to be a history maker in this world. But that, that really grows out of a desire, not for God's glory and God's kingdom, but for our own fame and honor. I'm going to make a difference. I'm going to matter. I'm going to change history. God, God isn't building his kingdom, though, through select superheroes. We tell the story of the church through heroes like Augustine and Luther and Calvin and Wesley and Edwards, but God doesn't. The actual growth of the gospel comes through millions of Christians whose names we don't know, 
who loved their neighbors, who shared their gospel with their friends, who raised their children to know the Lord, who came to prayer meetings and served in Sunday schools and in youth groups. You will probably not be a history maker. Just saying. It's time to let that dream die. Go find your part of the wall and build with your whole heart for the glory of God. God has probably not called you to be a history-changing superstar, but I know that he has called you to be part of the greatest building project in history, the Church of Jesus Christ. See, Jesus' church is being built through us, being faithful in the ordinary and unheralded things, parenting your kids to know and love Jesus, stacking chairs and cleaning the church and calling someone on the phone to encourage them sharing the gospel with your neighbor, babysitting for someone who needs it. That's an amazing ministry. Visiting someone sick in the hospital, representing Christ at work, telling the truth when it's hard. I find this idea beautifully liberating. I don't have to be Calvin or Spurgeon. God has called me to be me. And I need to be faithful with what he's called me to do, not with what he's called you to do. It's beautifully liberating. If I feel pressure, to change the world, that comes from my own ego, not from God. God has called me to love my family. God has called me to love and serve the people that he's put in my life and in my path. He's called me to pastor the people that he's gathered around me. He's called me to pray for my neighbors and to share Jesus with them. What part of God's church has God called you to build in? Where are you gonna put your bricks? Jesus is building his church and he's doing it through ordinary people faithfully doing their part. Secondly, we see that God uses all kinds of people working together. We have an incredible list of hard to pronounce names and yet what we find, we do not find a single professional builder among this whole list. There's not one stonemason or carpenter among them. Who's doing the building? Who's working? All kinds of people working together. The priests, even the high priest, get to, get to work at the sheep gate. They took off his priestly robes and he's getting the brick and the mortar out. And he's mentioned first, he leads by example, grabs the hammer and gets after it. He's not above this work. He's not an inside guy. And he's gotta, gotta go look at, his, you know, look at his scrolls for a bit. He's working. We got goldsmiths, merchants, perfume makers, Levites, rulers, temple servants, brothers. The one guy had his daughters working with him. The list is diverse. We see all kinds of people working together for God's purposes. Likewise, in the New Testament, the church is called the body of Christ. Christ is the head. We are the body. We each play a different part. Each play a, a unique and necessary role. We're one body with many parts. He has called us to serve and work, but He's made us all unique. We're all called to serve in unique and different ways. God's not calling you and I to the same ministry, the same exact work. You don't have to be me. I can't possibly be you. But it's as we utilize our diversity of gifts toward one vision, one mission, together that we see the church operating as designed. We need the full body engaged, each being faithful as called. And that's what we see happening in Nehemiah 3, and that's what we ought to see happening in the church today. Third thing we see is that God calls us to take ownership of the mission. You know, some people are building the wall right beside their house, and they're taking ownership of the work, and they're doing the work um, 
They're going to do it well. They're going to do it right because it's their own house that's on the other side of that wall. They have a vested interest. But other people that are building, they're not even from Jerusalem. They're coming to help out. They live in the surrounding regions, but have come to join the work. They too take ownership of the task, even though it's not their home. And some guys work on multiple sections. Seven times we're told that someone worked on another section. They got the job done because it was their wall, their city, their home. They took ownership of the mission. And in the church, we need to take ownership of the ministry and the work of the church. We need to stop asking questions like, how is this going to serve me? What do I get out of this? And we need to start asking how I can serve Christ and his mission. I mean, imagine if the people of Jerusalem were there and Nehemiah came and he came and told them, we're going to build the wall and this is what God's put in my heart to do. And they were like, ah, it's not the way we built the last wall. <laughs> it's not, this is not the way we did it last time. Or, you know, when I lived in Babylon, we had much nicer walls. This wall's not that nice. Or, you know, wall building's not my thing. I'm a perfumer. I work at the, you know, the, the fragrance section of Sears. I don't really do this kind of brickwork. I mean, you should really hire a guy to do that. This isn't really my thing. You build the wall, Nehemiah. This is your job. No. The people accomplished something amazing, something they hadn't been able to do for the last 10 years because they came together under Nehemiah's vision and everyone stepped in and did their part. Everyone took ownership of the mission. Everyone needs to take ownership of their part of the mission. Nobody can do it all, but we can each do our section. We can each build our part. So what's your part? What's your part of the wall? Start with your household. What has God called you to be with those in your home? Then your neighbors. How has God called you to serve your neighbors, your friends, your coworkers, the people that God has put in your life? In his sovereignty, he has put these people in your path, in your life for a purpose. How can you love and serve and encourage in your small group? Or how can you build into them? Where else in the church can you love and serve and build together? Where is your part of the wall? What is God calling you to do? A church becomes a dynamic and exciting place when everyone takes ownership and does what they can. And fourthly, God calls us to work as an act of worship. When Eliashib, the high priest, and the other priests built the sheep gate in verse 1, it says they consecrated it. They devoted it to the Lord. Their work was worship. When they were building, they were worshiping. And in uh, 2.18, it says, so they strengthened their hands for the good work. See, they saw this not just as a building project, but as a righteous work, as an act of worship. They saw that they were building God's city for God's name. And so they worked with a heart of worship. Anytime we serve or work for God's glory with a heart of praise, we are worshiping in our work. So fixing the dung gate can be an act of worship. Making coffee can be an act of worship. Cleaning the sanctuary, hosting a small group, baking bread for your neighbors. This is worship. Do it as if you were doing it for God himself. On the flip side, we see the opposite. Take a look at verse 5. It says, And next to them the Tekoites repaired, but their nobles would not stoop to serve their Lord. See, not everyone supported Nehemiah. 
The men of Tekoa came to Jerusalem from, you know, this other village. They came to help out, to serve. But the nobles from that town refused. Well, why? Were they afraid of the opposition? There certainly were people that were trying to stop them. Were they unwilling to get dirty and do hard work? Were they unwilling to follow Nehemiah's leadership and vision? Not sure, but they became skeptics. They stayed back. They didn't help. And for all history, they will be remembered as those who stood in the way, who didn't chip in, who abandoned their people in their time of need. And here's the irony. The scriptures don't even remember their names. Their names aren't even mentioned here. These nobles who are too important for the work, their names are lost and forgotten to history. Meanwhile, Melchiah builds the dung gate and we're still talking about him. His name is recorded in Holy Scripture to be remembered and celebrated forever. But the nobles, I don't even know, I don't even care. They stood in the way of God's work. It doesn't matter. Now, Melchiah, let's talk about Melchiah. There's a man to be remembered. And God was intentional, including his and all their names in Holy Scripture, so that thousands of years later, we would still be saying their names together as a church celebrating their faithfulness with their little bit. Look, if, if we don't join in God's work, if we become back row skeptics who stay unattached to the mission of the church, we're only going to look foolish in the end for standing against that which cannot fail. Jesus will build his church. The work will not fail. And so those who pour themselves out in the mission of God's church will be remembered forever and their efforts are guaranteed to have an eternal impact because in the end the church will stand for eternity no matter how big or how small their contribution seems it will be recorded and remembered for all eternity that's an unwasted life and yet those who are skeptical or busy or disinterested will have spent their lives on things that don't matter, will have been forgotten, will have been wasted. Do you only serve the Lord when you get recognized? Or will you serve if no one notices? Is it about you? Or is it about us together for the glory of God? And so we conclude that someone's got to build the dung gate. Without the dung gate, an entire wall is useless. A wall is as only good as its weakest part. Everyone wants to work by the Tower of Ovens where it smells like a subway, but someone's got to build the dung gate. It's not glorious, but it's critical. Everyone has a role to play, and it might not be the role that you want. We typically ask, where do I want to serve? But maybe we should probably ask, where am I needed? Where am I needed? When we serve in God's church, we may find that it is pretty messy. There's all sorts of difficult, unwelcome situations. Often ministry is less tower of ovens and a lot more dung gate. But in the church, we can't run away from the hard stuff. We can't ignore the brokenness, the mess, the undesirable tasks. To do God's work means to do all that he calls us to, no matter the smell, no matter how hard. And so let's build the dung gate. Well, while we tend to view history and the church and our life through a very individualistic lens, the Bible tells us that there is one man who has changed history. 
One man who's changed history and his name is Jesus. He came as the new Adam and the new Israel. He came not to live for himself. He lived the perfectly righteous life on our behalf as our representative. He died on the cross, condemned for our sin on, his be on our behalf. And he rose again for our salvation, conquering our enemies of Satan's sin and death. And he rescues us from our individualitis and calls us together into a new humanity, a new people set apart for God, using our gifts not to serve ourselves, but to serve others, to serve his mission and to serve his people. We are saved from our selfishness, from our pride, and welcomed into the family of God, belonging to him and to each other. First Peter 2 puts it this way, as you, plural, as you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious. You yourselves, plural, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. He goes on, but you, plural, are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who calls you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. See, Nehemiah called the people to take the broken and burned up stones and to rebuild the wall out of those stones. The burned and broken stones became the wall of the holy city. Jesus, the rejected, but precious cornerstone is taking us, though burned and broken by our sin, but now living stones being built up into a spiritual house, a holy temple that is the church. We who were outsiders, sinners, rebels, are made into a priesthood, his holy nation, his holy people. We who are not a people are now God's people. The stones that were broken and burned are being built up into the new Jerusalem, the holy city, the church of Jesus. Praise be to God. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for the gospel. We thank you for the truth of the mercy that is ours in Christ. We thank you that you have not treated us as we deserve, but you have shown us grace and mercy. And we thank you that you have called us to be your people. I pray that you would protect us from any sickly thinking that sees that it's all about us. Cure us of our pride and selfishness and greed. Where we view the church as a means to our own ends. We view each other in a transactional way, looking what we can get, not what we can give. Where we live our lives trying to make it matter in a way that will resound for our fame and our glory where we want people to be really impressed with all that we are and all that we do. Cure us from all this sick and distorted thinking, God. And we pray that you would help us to live for your name and your glory, that we would be all about what you're all about, the church and the advancement of the gospel for your glory. I pray that you would give us hearts to serve, to love like you love, to serve as you have served. Pray that you'd fill us with courage and faith, empower us by your spirit, to be the people you're calling us to be. For your name and your glory, we pray. Amen. Amen.